afternoon and welcome to the second uh, annual lecture for, from the um, Clinical Neurosciences Society. The CNS is um, the staff club of uh, NDCN and we're here basically to promote educational, developmental and social events for all members of the department. And it's been our tradition for one year. So not very long. It's been our tradition to start the academic year with a lecture. And it's my great pleasure today to um, welcome uh, Zoltan Molna. But first of all, I will pass over to my uh, co-chair, Kristalina, who will uh, formally introduce Zoltan. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to see so many of you here today, um, and it's a great pleasure to have Professor Zoltan Molnar, who is a Professor of Developmental Neuroscience here at the Department of Physiology, Anatomy and Genetics here at the University of Oxford. He's a world-leading expert in brain development, particularly looking at the interactions between the environment and the unfolding genetic program of the brain, with special attention to the cerebral cortex. He has a strong interest in, uh, in uh, uh, the history of neuroscience, and he has been leading a number of different initiatives, not only here in Oxford, but uh, worldwide and in the European Federation of Neurosciences as well. Uh, with Demian Young, they have set up a fantastic website called the History of Medical Sciences, and I'm sure Zoltan will share with you it with us later on. So if you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to go up there because it has a wealth of information that you might be interested in using in your teaching or um, telling your PhD students or your postdocs uh, to be looking at it. And I think the most important thing that I forgot to say is that um, Zoltan is the senior treasurer of the Lawn Tennis Club here in tennis, I'm told, which uh, he's, he's very fond of. So it is my great pleasure, Zoltan, to welcome you here today to talk to us about the neuroscience in Oxford, four centuries of discoveries. <coughs> Thank you very much for your hospitality. I'm, I'm really honored to be here today. So thank you, Kristalina, and uh, thank you, Chris, for, and not just only for, for this occasion, but over the last decades, you have been pulling together neuroscience in Oxford, and uh, you know it's in a very good shape now. So thanks for all these efforts. Thank you. So. Um, I have to start with a disclaimer that I'm not a historian, and I'm often reminded to this fact by my wife, who is a French medieval historian. So, but I love history of, of neuroscience, and uh, I love Oxford, and it's a wonderful place to, to look at the history of neuroscience. And in fact, I would like to start by saying that the word neurology comes from Oxford. And um, we have to go back to the 16th, 17th century, and this is the time when most of these colleges were established. And, um, um, for instance, uh, Brasenose, Corpus Christi, St. John's, 1555, and uh, Oxford already admitted about 400 uh, students at these early stages, and uh, it was the center of the universe. And uh, if we walk down uh, next to the Old Bank Hotel to Merton Street, you find this house, uh, which is called Beam Hall, or it was also called Beeham Hall, and this is the house where Thomas Willis uh, lived and worked, and he produced uh, this book, The Cerebri Anatomy, which is a world-famous book in this house. And it was Alastair Buchan who uh, uh, actually uh, revised this plaque, and now there's a new one on, on this house, a bit more detailed information. And uh, Alastair uh, discovered that it was originally called Beeham Hall, uh, but now it's called Beam Hall. And this is exactly where uh, Thomas Willis conceived the word neurology in this book, in the Cerebri Anatomy. In fact, he called it Neurologia in Latin. He published most of his book, uh, books were in Latin. In those days, if you were royalist, you wanted to express your lo uh, loyalty to the king that you published in Latin. And then later in the English translation, the word neurology was conceived. So we can consider that Oxford established neuroscience. And I tell this to every medical student uh, when I start teaching them uh, at the beginning of their second year. So, uh, and of course, neuroscience is a huge discipline, and this is where uh, what I mentioned about uh, Chris Kennard. Just imagine to pull together these departments. It's very difficult, because they don't really realize that they are basically in the same boat, and uh, we have to cooperate to push neuroscience. So the Strategic Oversight Committee has a very difficult uh, task. So I'm here in the anatomy part 
of the Department of Physiology, Anatomy, and Genetics, and sometimes we pool together, but not pool together in this in this part. So Willis um, had not just this terminology, which is uh, to his name, but he was a practicing clinician who dissected his own uh, patients after they died, and um, he <laughs> described. Uh, uh, several structures in the brain, and his description was uh, spot on, uh, very accurate. So you can see that this brain is in a lamentable condition because it's falling apart. Uh, there was no fixative in those days. This is how a fixed brain would look like. You also see that this patient had a stroke, but uh, this brain is, is, is basically uh, not fixed. And Willis was looking at these brains and uh, um, his name survived, and everybody knows in medical circles the name Willis because of this arteriosus circle, which is formed by the two internal carotid arteries and also the two vertebral arteries which merge to the basilar artery. So you have this anastomosis, which he described um, in a patient uh, with a stomach cancer, and he injected uh, ink and showed this uh, circular uh, fashion. He wasn't the first. He wasn't even in the best five. <laughs> but his name survived because he had the best illustrations. And his illustrations are, are coming from uh, Christopher Wren, who was a very famous architect here in Oxford. As, as you know, if you matriculated from here, the Sheldonian Theatre was designed by Christopher Wren, the All Souls College, and also the uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, uh, and lots of other colleges at, at Cambridge. So uh, Christopher Wren uh, uh, did the illustrations, and actually uh, he, it is acknowledged several times in, in the cerebral anatomy by, by Willis, um, and also the other students who contributed to this. So Willis, Willis managed to combine clinical career with teaching, and uh, also uh, published extremely well. So Kristalina gave me these uh, images, so I borrow it. Uh, so you can see that the Willis circle is, is um, formed by the two internal carotid and the two vertebral branches uh, at the base of the brain. Uh, you can see it more after you remove the brain. And this is such a general feature of all uh, mammalian brains. You can see it even in an embryonic 18 days old mouse brain which I stained with lectin and reconstructed in 3D. So you can see the two internal carotids, uh, the basilar artery here. So it's very similar in, in all uh, uh, mammals. Willis had other contributions, and we uh, forget that lots of anatomical terms were actually given by Willis, which we use today. For instance, claustrum, medullary pyramids, olives, corpus striatum, some of the nerves, cranial nerves, were described by, by internal capsule. He identified the three uh, cerebellar peduncles, and all these uh, were described in his cerebral anatomy book, and um, usually the second-year medics, uh, uh, they hate the anatomical nomenclature because uh, they just doesn't make sense. But in the 15th and 16th century, they, they did make sense, and everybody had a very good command of Latin and Greek. And most of these terms uh, actually just describe the shape, the color, or texture of that particular uh, part of the brain. For instance, the pineal gland uh, received its name because of the shape. It's like a pine cone, or the colliculi, because they are little hills. Or, or the pyramid is because of the shape. Or the pons, it looks like a bridge. Or the olives, uh, they look like uh, the olives. So all this terminology <laughs> was... <laughs> Was, um, was established, and really, they don't really reflect uh, the, the, the function of that particular um, uh, region of the brain. He also got 10 uh, cranial nerves right, which is very good. Um, even for a second-year medical student, that would be good at the beginning of the, of the year. Uh, uh, he confused the glossopharyngeal nerve with the hypoglossal, so if you look at some of his drawings carefully, you can see that the the medial sulcus next to the olive, there's nothing leaving from there, whereas the 9, 10, 11, it's correctly illustrated here. So, so the hypoglossal was missed. And uh, so Willis had a huge contribution, and he's immortal. But uh, very few people realize that actually Willis had a much bigger contribution uh, to neuroscience. He was the first who suggested that the higher cognitive function um, is localized in the cerebral cortex. He had two arguments. One is a comparative, and the other one was looking at the patients. 
So he dissected other species, like uh, this is a sheep brain, and uh, he argued that the brainstem is very similar in the sheep and human. However, uh, when you look at the cerebral cortex, it's much smaller in the sheep uh, compared to human. So he suggested that the uh, cerebrum is the primary seat of rational soul in man and the sensitive soul in animals. He, he was, of course, dualist, uh, but he uh, established this link between the size of the cerebral cortex um, um, and the, the cognitive functions. And I'm very pleased to say that Margaret Asiri uh, uh, produced a uh, film together with Mike Mosley uh, for BBC Two, and this, uh, this has been featured. Unfortunately, when it came to filming, they, they told me that, Zoltan, can you just please... <laughs> so I, I didn't appear uh, after five hours of consultation uh, with my <laughs> So be careful when you work with BBC. <laughs> I'm not like Robert, who is every week, he's on BBC. <laughs> um, even his toe on BBC. <laughs> so um, Willis uh, got it absolutely right. If you look at the cerebral cortex, it's a huge structure. Uh, a large volume of the brain is uh, comprised of cerebral cortex. And if we zoom through this image of, uh, of the human brain, you can see that indeed a lot of tissue packed into the cerebral cortex at the surface. So Willis got this absolutely right. The cerebral cortex is a huge um, a component of the human brain. However, the human cerebral cortex is big and convoluted, but it's not the biggest and not the most convoluted brains. Uh, you have several species, uh, uh, dolphin, elephant, who has more convoluted brains, and they look even more elaborate than the humans. So what is so special about the human brain? And for that, you really have to uh, look at the uh, cell composition uh, of the uh, human brain. And on the, even on these nissel-stained sections, and even if I didn't adjust the balance of the screen, I'm sorry about that, that you can see that you have lots of cells packed into the cerebral cortex and they, are, um, uh, they can be counted now in uh, methods where you uh, basically homogenize the whole brain and you count a small volume of that. So it's, this technique is called the isometric fractionation. And, um, and uh, uh, Herculano Huzel in the Rio was counting lots of different species, and these numbers come from her work. So basically, if you look at a, an elephant brain, you only have about 10 billion loosely packed large neurons in the brain, whereas in the chimpanzee you have 6.5 and human about 20 uh, billion neurons, and they are densely packed. If we compare a, a primate with a rodent, you have these large Amazonian rodents like Aguti, Capybara, um, in South uh, uh, America, and if you look at these uh, brains, the same, same weight, but you have uh, more cells in a primate brain than in a, in a rodent brain. So the scaling of the primate brain is very different. Even if we look at the largest rodent ever lived on Earth, uh, this now extinct uh, rodent, uh, Foveromus, which lived in South America, uh, it was um, 700 kilograms, just imagine, it's a rodent, and, uh, and if you look at the brain, you only have 7.5 billion neurons, whereas in human, uh, in the, about um, 1,350 grams on average of our brain, we have 10 billion neurons. So the primate brain, especially the human, is uh, very densely packed, and this is so special about the human brain. And these are the estimates for the number of, uh, of some of our closest relatives. And uh, indeed, we can say that the human brain is special. We have the largest number of, of cells. So uh, Willis didn't get this one absolutely right, but uh, he was close. So basically, the human cerebral cortex has the most neurons on, uh, um, uh, living, in living organisms in this earth. So uh, Willis, his second argument was that if we look at some diseases, uh, then the, where you have morphological changes in the cerebral cortex, then you also have cognitive abnormalities. So this boy had signs of um, uh, intractable epilepsy and also learning disability. And we just argued that the, uh, the surface of the brain had more frequent but smaller foldings. So 
compared to a normal individual. As I mentioned, both brains are in lamentable condition because of lack of fi fixation. But if we now know that indeed there are such syndromes where due to abnormal neurogenesis or um, neuronal migration, you have problems with the um, uh, cortical tissue. So for instance, you can have a smooth surface brain in type 1 lysencephaly, or you can have polymicrogyria uh, syndrome. And uh, Willis was probably looking at such a case, uh, and he got it absolutely right. And now we understand a bit more about uh, the pathology of these polymicrogyria syndromes. And um, if we, for that, we really have to understand how these neurons are generated in the cerebral cortex. So uh, I just want to have a small detour uh, just to understand the development of the, the cortex. Obviously, Willis did not understand this at that time. So uh, if you look at the cerebral cortex, you can um, divide uh, the cortex up into several layers. Basically, the packing density of the cells is different. You have different cell types, different cell size. They stain differently. And this has been uh, recognized by generations of neuroscientists, and they understood that different layers will have different um, cells with different morphology. For instance, layer six neurons project to the thalamus, whereas layer five, they project to the uh, spinal cord, basal pons, uh, colliculi. And um, uh, then upper layers, they might connect to the cortical, cort uh, other cortical areas. And it was Brodmann and Economo who started systematically uh, looking at these uh, different proportions across the convexity of the brain. And uh, they noticed that some areas, like the free central gyrus, you have more layer five cells, so it's much thicker. Or in the primary uh, sensory area, you have more layer four. And based on this, they allocated different regions uh, with a different color. So these are the organs of the cerebral cortex, and they argued that they, they might uh, serve different functions. And they were absolutely right. So these um, minor differences in cytoarchitecture, they reflect differences in the circuitry you have in these different areas. And these circuits, they perform different computational functions. And uh, lesions in different areas will have different um, uh, functional uh, consequences. So that's why anatomy is so powerful. And all these cells are generated very early on in your life. Have you ever thought about how old is your brain or your body? It's, um, as I get older, I often think about this. <laughs> so so um, how old do you think your skin is or your intestine or your blood? Uh, these are interesting questions. And how old is your cerebral cortex? So intestines, as you know, in every two, three days you replace your <coughs> intestine. So there's uh, anything, nothing left from last week. Or your taste buds, uh, lungs, skin, in every two, four weeks you replace your, your, your skin. Your red blood cells in four months. And in February, that's why they advise you not to drink. So your liver has a chance to regenerate because it is replacing itself every five months. So dry February. So um, nails, uh, hair, bones, even your heart is uh, replacing itself uh, throughout your life. And now we come to the eye, the retina, and the brain. And it's interesting that it's the same age as you are, and also your brain is the same age as you are, which is very disappointing, <laughs> if, you think about, if you think about it. Um, so how do we know that? I mean, in animal experiments, it's very easy to determine the birth date of cells. All you have to do is inject a thymidine analog, fibromodeoxyuridine, and then it's incorporating into the DNA in, during S phase, and all the cells which are born at the time of administration of this drug uh, can be uh, uh, followed. Obviously, you can't do this experiment in human, and, um, or you can't use radioactivity. To, to look at uh, cell birth in human. Or can you? Yes. Unfortunately, this, who said yes? Me. So you know that it, we are crazy apes, humans. Because we, um, if you look at this, uh, the carbon-14 levels in the environment, um, before Jesus, nothing, nothing. And then here, suddenly, there is a huge increase in carbon-14 levels. So why do you think this happened? because of the surface testing. 
So we started blowing up um, bombs uh, on the surface of the Earth. And then if you look at uh, the three rings and you isolate a tissue from different parts of the, the, the ring, you can see that there is a huge increase in the 50s, 60s, peaking around 63, and then it started dropping. Why do you think it dropped? Excellent. That, uh, basically, uh, Gromyko and, and Kennedy, they signed the limited nuclear test ban. The French, they still blew up a few, unfortunately, but then they also stopped, uh, and then the levels were decreasing. So, if we want to know how old is our brain, all we have to do is find an individual who was um, uh, developing at 1963 and born 64, and have a look at the brain. Actually, I happen to be in that category. I was born in 64, <laughs> so we could, um, we could have a look at my brain and have a look at the carbon-14 levels. And this experiment has been done in Scandinavia. Uh, a volunteer gave the brain, and they looked at the carbon-14 levels, and they sorted the neurons and the glia, and you can see that the, the neurons basically had the same age as the individual. So they were born in utero. And the glial cells, on average, they were about uh, 10 years younger than the, than the neurons. So basically, the, the, in the cerebral cortex. They found some regions of the brain, the dentate gyrus and the subventricular zone, where you had some uh, newly born neurons, but not in the cerebral cortex. So this really settled this argument. And uh, the region where they found these new, newly born neurons are here embedded into the temporal lobe, and this structure is called the hippocampus. And this is the structure which is involved in learning and memory. And when you are um, in an environmentally enriched area, you do physical exercise, or you pass the knowledge test, if you are a London taxi driver, then this area will increase in size because you still have neurogenesis there. But in the rest of the cerebral cortex, you don't have neurogenesis. And basically, we have all the neurons are born uh, with us when we uh, are born. So all my neurons in my cerebral cortex are from Hungary. I brought them with me, uh, so there is not much more. And this is kind of a depressing thought, because we have to kind of go through life with all the neurons we have, and that's why we have to look after them, because there is no more division of mature neurons, or very limited, and basically the same, uh, your cortical neurons are the same age as you are. So that's why I think it's so important to study brain development from these very early stages, because if things go wrong, uh, you have your cards distributed for the rest of your life, and you can compensate for that for a while, but then the things will manifest. So let's have a look at how neurons are generated. So most of the, so the nervous system is developing from a tube, and the inner layer of this tube is going to give rise to the uh, to the neurons. So most of the divisions you can see here <coughs> occur at the lumen. You can detect these with these special antibodies, and then you see two zones where the cells divide. So this particular antibody is only expressed in dividing cells, and you can see in the ventricular and the subventricular zone that cells divide. And then um, the second zone of division has a different gene expression from the ventricular zone, and this is where the output from this mitotic factory uh, will be amplified. So you have so-called intermediate progenitor cells in this region. So these uh, progenitors don't always produce neurons and other progenitors, but sometimes they produce intermediate progenitors, and they will amplify the output uh, uh, from the germinal zone. And these intermediate progenitors are kind of the holy grail of developmental neurobiology. Because if we ever contemplate self-replacement therapy, they are already partially fate-restricted, so they can be transplanted. So for instance, Robert, when he is uh, transplanting retina, uh, probably he uh, would like to use some of them which are fate-restricted for that particular cell type. Now, if you don't uh, um, have these intermediate progenitors, or they don't divide properly, or you have some transcription factors are missing which regulate the division, you end up with a um, head which is, and brain which is smaller than the average, and if it is two standard deviations below the average, then it's microcephaly. 
And these microcephaly syndromes are associated with divisions in, the, in these progenitors and some associated with the intermediate progenitors. And if you have a mutation in TBR2, which is expressed in these uh, cells, then you have a huge reduction in the, in the number of cells and you, you can have microcephaly. And recently we have mapped the output from these intermediate progenitors. And if you uh, look at these numbers, a huge proportion of the cerebral cortex is coming from these intermediate progenitors. If you knock out this transcription factor, that you have a huge reduction in the numbers in all layers, which is matching the, the fate mapping. And, and this is um, um, interesting because now we begin to understand how the cortex is generated through these intermediate progenitors. So Willis was absolutely right. If you have problems with the, these intermediate progenitors, you can have more but smaller gyri, polymicrogyria syndromes, and, um, and uh, with um, uh, intractable epilepsy and uh, learning disability. <coughs> but the next step is really to understand uh, the lineage of these cells. And um, um, uh, Fernando Garcia Moreno, who is a postdoctoral fellow in my laboratory, uh, made a breakthrough uh, a few years ago. He established a fluorescent molecular barcode for these cells. So uh, individual progenitors can be labeled with a unique per permanent uh, barcode. And then uh, when you study this tissue, then you scan in these cells like you scan in your yogurt at Sainsbury's with the barcode and you know which yogurt you bought and you scan them in and then you can uh, follow the lineage in these cells. So this is the next step. We would like to now understand the lineage within the cortex in different uh, developmental abnormalities. So this is now, uh, that's what is keeping us awake at night to understand this lineage in different uh, conditions. So. Now we know that most of the cells are generated here at the internal lumen of the, of the brain, but then they have to migrate out and they have an address and a destination. So if you have problems with this migration, these partially uh, or completely fate-restricted cells will be stranded in the wrong place and uh, um, they can actually never leave the ventricular zone and you can have these um, periventricular heterotopias, which also cause epilepsy and also uh, a learning uh, disability. So uh, the uh, migration, if it's affected, then it will have also an impact. So Willis got this absolutely right. This is the cere cerebrocortical developmental abnormalities can cause all these cognitive disorders. And in fact, there are some other cognitive disorders which, ha which have much uh, more subtle anatomical signature. Sometimes you don't even see any anatomical changes in the brain. They are so subtle. So you have to go in with more and more sensitive uh, methods. And um, uh, now it's widely accepted that um, schizophrenia, autism, and also learning disabilities, uh, they are associated to some brain developmental conditions. And that's why it's so important that we study the developing brain, because the rules for the developing brain are very different uh, uh, than for the adults. So if you are a pediatrician and you have to treat a newborn um, uh, for epilepsy or uh, complications of birth, the rules are very different. You cannot just treat the, the immature brain as a smaller version of the adult. So basically we have to base this on evidence. And, and I have to say that some of the treatment we use today probably is not based on the best evidence. So that's why basic research is important and important that we interact with uh, pediatricians. Okay, so after this detour to development, which is my research area, so sorry, that's why I had to um, get into this. Uh, uh, Willis recognized lots of sy syndromes and diseases, and these are just some of them. He noticed that uh, flies preferred certain urine samples and not the others, uh, and um, uh, distinguished uh, different um, uh, polyuria syndromes. He even described the restless leg syndrome, which um, is an autosomal dominant um, um, uh, condition, and we still don't understand uh, what it is. How is it related to iron metabolism or dopamine levels? Uh, but nevertheless, he described this syndrome already. And uh, narcolepsy as well. So Willis was a real giant. 
and uh, at St. John's College, which is my college uh, now, uh, I had access to original letters Willis wrote to his colleagues. And in these letters, um, Willis was giving advice uh, to his colleagues, in this case to Richard Higgis uh, at Coventry, how to treat certain conditions. And from these letters, I can deduct that uh, he was aiming to get um, a rational explanation for the disease, but the treatment, what he proposed, was sometimes was ridiculous. <laughs> so, so sometimes he proposed that um, if you have an eye infection, you should put some powdered uh, scorpion and also dried uh, dog excrement and mix it together and put it to the eye and this kind of thing. So, so probably, <laughs> um, probably some of these were not as effective as, as uh, they thought at the time. But nevertheless, uh, the advantage was that they were looking for the rational explanation. So can we, and can Oxford claim that Willis was such an excellent neurologist and physician and researcher because Oxford University was so good? And the answer is no, for the contrary. Willis, um, Willis's career and studies were interrupted by the Civil War. And uh, he, this is the time when um, the Royalist uh, and Cromwell uh, troops were in Oxford. And for instance, in my college, uh, there is a cannonball which was fired into the North Gate by Cromwell, by the rebel forces, because St. John's was Royalist College. So this is the time when Willis started studying medicine. And uh, so this was not the best time to do it. He matriculated at Christchurch, but then his studies were disrupted. And basically, he received his degree very fast. He was a royalist. He enlisted in Dover's regiment in the service of the king, but probably he never took part in any fights. But nevertheless, he was rewarded for his royalty with Charles I uh, with a medical degree. And he didn't have to go through the 14 years of studying Aristotle and Galenus, which was the curriculum at the time. So for 14 years, they had to memorize in Latin Aristotle and Galenus. And that would kill out the initiative from anybody. <laughs> so he was spared from this. And there is a lesson here. Uh, so sometimes it's better not to have an education if it is the wrong type of education. And uh, basically, um, uh, Willis was spared from this. And um, um, after, uh, Charles I was executed, but... Uh, then, uh, after the Restoration, he was, by Charles II, he was elected the Sedlian Professor of Natural Philosophy and got his uh, uh, doctorate. So, why was it detrimental to have that kind of education? So, just imagine that you have to learn Aristotle and Galen without any critical thinking. At that time, they believed that uh, all these functions were in these cells in the brain, and that was the cell doctrine. And basically this was repeated in lots of medieval drawings. Even Leonardo da Vinci, initially, at early stages of his career, he was drawing these cells in the brain. Obviously, he didn't dissect at the time. And after Leonardo da Vinci had the idea to inject some um, molten wax into the ventricles, his drawings changed. Now you can see the two lateral ventricles, the third ventricle, aqueduct, fourth ventricle, and it is very similar to the resin uh, cast we have when we inject resin into the human brain. So you can see that uh, the cerebrospinal fluid is generated mostly in the lateral ventricles, then the third going through the aqueduct, fourth ventricle, then the foramina uh, lushka majandi, it's going to the convexity of the brain and then will be absorbed. So, uh, at the surface in the uh, uh, sinuses, in the granulations. So uh, Leonardo got this uh, uh, right. And also, what changed was that uh, the professors no longer uh, read Aristotle and Galen far away from the cadaver where an assistant was dissecting, and the medical students didn't pay attention. Uh, but what happened is now 
the professor is next to the cadaver and they are looking at the, the, uh, the dissection. And that changed the whole um, idea of anatomical description. And uh, this is the time when um, the first anatomical theaters were built, like in uh, Padua. Um, and um, anatomy at that time was the most important subject in medical school. And uh, it still is, by the way. And, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, so this is from Padua. And you can see the heads of the previous uh, professors of anatomy uh, in, the, in the room where they have the... Um, actually, they still have the D-field vivers there, the lean toe there. So, um, so Vesalius was uh, coming from Padua. Willis never left England. But he benefited from all these scholars who came back to England. And he was actually... Um, neighbor of William Harvey briefly at Merton Street. And for instance, if you look at the drawings of Vesalius, they are anatomically absolutely correct. So uh, what Willis and Vesalius had both in common, that they refused to see things through the eyes of another, and they avoided seeing the non-existent. And that's a very important message for us today. When you think about the uh, third-year medics, when they go through the final honor school, I think it's not a wasted time. If you want to base medicine on evidence, it's very important that you have exposure to uh, all these uh, research directions, both here in the hospital and also in the... Uh, and it's also it's a responsibility for the clinicians who will then teach them later on after the third year. So don't kill out the initiatives of the medical students when they come here and uh, just tell them that, uh, do it this way because I said so. <laughs> so, but let's try to understand them. Maybe they have very good ideas how to change traditions which were around for hundreds of years, but maybe you know, they should be changed. So evidence-based medicine um, will benefit from, from this. Now, in spite of all this success, Willis was struggling as a physician. He had to share horses with other doctors to go to Abingdon and neighboring villages. So he couldn't afford his own horse at the time until this episode happened. So he teamed up with William Petty, who was a Tomlin's reader of, of physiology, a position which is still associated with Christchurch today. And uh, Petty had the right to dissect executed prisoners within 21 mile radius of Oxford. And uh, in uh, 1649, they received the body of Anne Green, who was um, hanged at uh, Carfax, and uh, because uh, she was tried, and uh, uh, the judges thought that she, she killed uh, her uh, baby, who was probably premature. And that time, uh, the punishment was hanging. And she was delivered in a coffin to the office of Patty, when Willis was also present. And by the time the soldiers uh, delivered her, she started vocalizing. And, uh, the soldiers started to help her to die, so they started stamping at her chest with their feet. And if you think about it, this is the best resuscitation you can do. <laughs> and uh, after this, um, uh, Willis and Patty took over. They let some blood out, and they also uh, pushed down a feather in the throat. And then they put Anne Green into a bed with another lady, to warm her up, and then she recovered. And, uh, and they, as practicing clinicians, they produced this flyer, which was distributed, and their clinical career took off. After this, <laughs> after this they could charge anything to anybody, um, and um, uh, uh, basically uh, Willis uh, charged quite a lot of, uh, uh, from the rich and uh, treated the poor free. Now, this building where uh, Patty's office was is still here in Oxford. I couldn't verify it for 100% that this story is, is true. However, the building is still here and it's a very good Thai restaurant. Um, so, Willis published nine books, with the exception of the last one, all in Latin, and um, they are all masterpieces. And um, if you are interested in this period, then I recommend this book uh, by Ian Pierce, uh, uh, which is partially uh, on reality, and some of them are um, uh, fictitious. But it, this is my best book ever read, and I told this to Ian. 
uh, I love this book. And there is an imitation by Carl Simmer, which is also good, but not as good as the original. Now, after this, um, anatomical dissections moved into this building uh, in Oxford from the private rooms. So they no longer, longer dissected in their rooms. And um, this was the College Laboratory of Anatomy, which is now the launching facility at Christchurch, as you probably know, notice. And the anatomy, human anatomy department was growing out adjacent to the Pitt Rivers Museum. So this is the Pitt Rivers Museum, and this is the, the, the human anthropology is at this side. And then, in fact, the uh, one chair of anatomy, Le Gros Clark, was also interested in anthropology and human anatomy was growing up. And then later in the 50s, 60s, they, they built these uh, next to it. And in fact, my laboratory is just here in the oldest uh, part where Le Gros Clark's uh, laboratory was. And this is a fascinating building, so if you come have a look at it. Um, and um, here they can see the secrets of the heart, eyes, and body. So this part of the building is quite nice, uh, but the added quadrangle is a bit uh, of an of a impression of the 50s and 60s, so they might have to come up. The lecture theater is nice, and uh, this is built in the style of uh, Padua, and you see this original uh, table, the dissecting table, and the bodies were kept below, and for the lectures they were moved up. So the mortuary was below, and now this is the canteen of the, <laughs> of the uh, Department of Physiology, Anatomy, and Genetics, uh, the Le Gros Clark building. So Oxford had a huge contribution to the understanding of, of brain uh, anatomy, and now I would like to move to a few hundred years ahead and look at the word synapse, synapsis. And this, this word also comes from an Oxford uh, professor, Sir Charles Sherrington, Although he coined this term while he was still at Cambridge before leaving to Liverpool and then came to Oxford. He didn't get the physiology chair immediately, so he moved to Liverpool, but second time, 10 years later, he, he got the chair of physiology, and he coined this term uh, synapsis. So if you go to Wikipedia, erroneously, they give this term to Foster, because it, it does appear in Foster's textbook. But chapter seven was written by Sherrington. So the word is coming from Sherrington. And initially, he wanted to call it syndesmos. But then, um, after a high table dinner, uh, the classics tutors convinced him that synapsis is better for this. And uh, Sherrington had a huge contribution to neuroscience. Not only the synaptic action, but also the motor unit convergence. He worked out tone and po posture, and also uh, the inhibition, the concept of inhibition was established before him, but he was the most forceful um, behind this idea. And also, um, functional imaging is based on his idea, the regulation of the blood supply to the brain with Roy. He was Wainfield Professor of Physiology, associated to Modeling College, and he lived in this house at 9 Chadlington Road in Oxford. Now, who can afford to live in a house now? <laughs> uh, obviously, it's becoming a problem in Oxford now um, to, to live in within the ring road. In those days, you could get uh, something like that. So uh, there are lots of legacies of Sherrington inside the, uh, our buildings in the uh, Department of Physiology, Anatomy, and Genetics. And I found this box in the office of um, George Rada when he was head of department, and he asked me to declutter uh, his office. And this was at the top of the box, so it was obvious that this contained treasures. And I had a look at this box. And it was Marianne Fillens who explained me the story of the box. Was my deep supervisor in physiology. And when, and when she left, she handed the gate the and when I retired, I had to move out of my physiology role into what was then called pharmacology. And I handed the slides to the then head of department, who was Clyde Ellery. And basically, then uh, George moved into Clyde's office. And um, George thought that um, all these boxes and old papers were from Colin Blakemore. I was Colin's student, so it was my responsibility to clean up. <laughs> and I, took, uh, I looked at this box. And in fact, I started using it for teaching, and Damien Young helped me 
to develop a website. And uh, also Marianne helped me to understand uh, more of, this, of the story of this box. And I would like to show you a small video which was actually uh, uh, commissioned by the Wellcome Trust. It's a public understanding video which will explain you the story of the, of the box. this uh, video uh, until I realized that my 17 years old son who had an unsuccessful attempt for the triple burrito challenge in the burrito put it on YouTube had more likes and more views <laughs> than my 
public understanding uh, video which uh, took uh, almost a day to film. So, <laughs> um, so there's a lesson also there. But um, nevertheless, we were asked not to use any scientific terms in this video, so that's why I, I played it, because um, uh, so it's now clear that we understand that there are some signals coming from the muscle uh, to the spinal cord and back, back here. And this is what was so fundamental about Sherrington's discoveries. So he was dissecting these circuit loops, which now we have in all anatomy textbooks. Um, by the way, the new Gray's Anatomy is coming out uh, this week. I edited the development section, and they didn't let me change anything, so it's, it's the same. But uh, so if you look at these boxes, um, <clears throat> you can see amazing histology. So obviously a large portion of this box you have a spinal cord sections, so these are ventral horn motor neurons, or you can also see cross sections of nerves, and um, these nerves, uh, Sherrington was very interested, together with Eccles, in the divergence and convergence of pathways, so they were uh, looking at cutting these nerves at different levels, and they were counting the fibers, and they wanted to see where the fibers will arborize, and they concluded that they arborize very close to the muscle. So you have these original sections where they probably had to count these. Actually, Eccles had to count these because he was a student at the time um, of, of these fibers. And then uh, Sherrington had this very interesting idea that uh, you have to have some um, offerings coming into the spinal cord and the cell body is in the dorsal root ganglion. So what he did was he looked at this, the fiber numbers because they run in the, all the same nerve, these three ones, and he destroyed the dorsal root ganglion, and then he looked at the reduction of the number of cells, uh, fibers. And this was an ingenious experiment because he demonstrated that there is a huge proportion of the fibers degenerated, and this is demonstrating that you have an offerant input into the, uh, the spinal cord. He also has some preparations of the um, muscle spindles, but these are not as good as the preparations uh, uh, you find next to it, and you, you see that they, are, they look slightly different. So these sections look different from the others in Sherrington's box. And they come from Angelo Ruffini, who did the best silver impregnation at the time, and uh, his preparations are stunning, and he sent them to Sherrington, and Sherrington helped him to publish these. First, these papers were rejected by the uh, Royal Society's journal, and then later on they were published uh, at Journal of Physiology. Foster uh, helped uh, uh, Ruffini to publish them there. So he communicated these papers. And now it's all well established that you have this, um, uh, both the afferent and efferent mechanisms, and you can use it as a servo mechanism to initiate muscle contractions. And at the corner of this uh, uh, tray, you have another uh, section, which is also from Ruffini, and uh, believe me or not, this is from the hand of Ruffini, from his own skin. So um, at the time, what uh, uh, these researchers did was they were testing the perception, somatosensory perception on their own hands, and once they found an interesting spot, then they just cut it out, fixed, fixed it, and then they uh, had to look at them under the microscope. And and how do I know this for sure? We found the letters, the correspondence between um, Sherrington and Ruffini. And this is how, um, 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 actually this is Sherrington's letter to Ruffini and um, explaining how delighted he is. You can also see that they had some politics because uh, you can see that uh, Sherrington was pushing Ruffini's paper to the Royal Society's uh, journal, but it was rejected. So now they will approach Foster to communicate it in Journal of Physiology. So nothing changed. When your paper is rejected in Neuron, you immediately go to Nature Neuroscience or, or other journals. And I think these uh, slides, they tell a very interesting story, that in those days there was a very um, uh, nice friendship between these uh, leading scientists. They never met, but they corresponded and they sent some preparations to each other including this organ from Ruffini's finger. So organi nervos in el connettivo di pulpa anelli della dita uomo. So this is a human. And then he's dedicating it to Sherrington per amicizia e ricordo. 
so with friendship and um, memory. So then Sherrington started looking and poking some of his own students' skin. <laughs> and in some of the letters, he even offered uh, to send some of these and asked advice how to fix it. But then the correspondence stops, and I don't know whether Henry had skin was, was, was sent or not, uh, who also became a leading uh, uh, neurologist. So if you are interested in these sections, uh, go and have a look at this uh, uh, website. So all of them are scanned in. And Sherrington had other huge contribution to neuroscience. He mapped out the motor cortex extremely well, together with Grunbaum. And generations of neurosurgeons were trained by Sherrington, including Penfield and Cushing. They worked with Sherrington. And this is the technique which is used even to today by uh, some neurosurgeons to map uh, uh, the convexity of the brain. Now, Sherrington didn't have a very high opinion about neurosurgeons. He said that, you know, the life of a great surgeon is not really exciting, except, of course, from the patient's point of view. And uh, on Penfield, he wrote, it must be nice to hear the preparation speak to you. <laughs> because what Penfield established uh, already here in Oxford, he was at Merton, um, and what he established is that after the dura was opened, uh, and you know that most of the dura has very strong trigeminal innervation, but after that the brain has no pain uh, fibers, you can uh, stimulate different parts and then record movements or, or sensation. And um, uh, this is called the Montreal procedure, but it was really originating from Oxford uh, when they were students here. And I just show you um, a sequence where Orgerman in Seattle is uh, mapping out language areas. So some of you with a weaker constitution look away now. So you could see that uh, the speech immediately stopped uh, once the right area was. So what Ogerman is doing is, is um, mapping the representations of, uh, of languages. If you are bilingual, trilingual, you can have very different representations of these languages depending on when you learn the language. And there is a huge network here. And sometimes you hear all these stories when you have a, a stroke and then you have a foreign accent syndrome. So you acquire a Jamaican or Chinese accent. So if I have a stroke, maybe I will have a British accent. <laughs> so in English. So, uh, and so Sherrington was pioneered um, uh, these uh, techniques. And uh, the, the last um, uh, discovery I would like to point out from Sherrington is what he made with uh, uh, Charles Roy. And basically, they produced evidence for intrinsic vasomotor activity in the, in the cerebral blood vessels. So they noticed uh, that at resting and activated state, the blood vessels change. Um, and in the active area, uh, the brain has different, uh, different um, vascular activities. And I borrowed these slides from Irene Tracy. Uh, and basically, this is the, the uh, background of functional imaging. So Sherrington uh, laid uh, the foundation for this hemodynamic response for a stimulus, which is uh, very good because you have millimeters of spatial resolution. And uh, this technique is really non-invasive, unlike Orgerman and Penfield. You can do it many times and follow up uh, patients. So now we can check uh, which brain regions are active when you hear words, you see words, you, you speak words, or you just generate words, but you don't vocalize. So uh, this is a very powerful technique, and uh, Sherrington established um, uh, the foundations for this. He got the Nobel Prize, and also Eccles got the Nobel Prize and, um, uh, for the chemical transmission. And Eccles took this picture when he visited uh, um, Sherrington, and you have a, a painting in the Sherrington room in the uh, Department of Physiology, Anatomy, and Genetics, and you can see that the painter the artist wrote laboratory here. But there was no such building as laboratory. It was the physiology building. 
and this is where Sherrington worked. I took this photograph on the day when it was dismantled. This was the last day, and this is, um, obviously my office is here, so I could keep an eye on the building. And uh, now we have the biochemistry building at the site. So, the, uh, so we don't, no longer have the physiology building where, um, where Sherrington worked. Most of the teaching is now moved to the Medical Sciences Teaching Center. So this is where I meet most of you when you come and help with the teaching, uh, or you give your lectures. Um, we have all the physiology and biochemistry practicals. We have a dissection room. We also have computer-assisted learning programs. Some of the Part A exams are done here in SUPFOSC. So poor students, they have to dress up in SUPFOSC during the, this computer-based. And uh, this is where I teach every Monday, uh, Neuro. And I'm very grateful to uh, all the clinical colleagues uh, who come and help. This Monday, these people came and helped from, uh, from here. And I hope you keep sending your uh, your junior doctors, uh, PhD students, uh, to help with the teaching. It's also good for their CV uh, to do. So don't forget, it's the Medical Sciences Teaching Center. We just have to convince the preclinical director to have some designated parking place for you, because that's the biggest problem, I think. Um, and finally, I want to finish with Kimbrib. Um, um, uh, Irene is no longer the director. Heidi took over. Um, and uh, I think it's a very good example how to bring neuroscience together uh, in Oxford. Because with these imaging techniques, which were uh, principles were established by um, uh, Sherrington, you can actually uh, link up lots of different areas of neuroscience, and it's a real hub, uh, a real center for, for uh, systems neuroscience in Oxford. And we have lots of strength uh, uh, built around Fimbrib. And uh, uh, this is where we usually meet when we, we come here. Um, and uh, the, the secret is that uh, fMRI is in an area where you can link cellular and molecular neuroscience with uh, systems. And that's why it's such a powerful approach. And that's why it will continue to be the center, the hub of, of uh, neuroscience in Oxford. And we shouldn't forget that this is all based on Sherrington's work. And in the last two minutes, I just want to show you one more breakthroughs, which is Oxford responsible for. Because all these techniques are pretty descriptive. You cannot really stimulate uh, during these imaging methods. But you can if you express a channel in a selected group of cells. And this channel is light sensitive. And when you shine light onto these cells, then they can modify the firing. And this is called optogenetics. And Gero Milzenbock, who, who was recruited to Oxford from Yale, um, had a huge contribution to this field. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, why don't I just let uh, Jay Leno explain what is the principle of optogenetics? And I borrowed this from uh, NBC. Well, here's something I talked about last week. This is an amazing story. Uh, Yale University researchers have used lasers to create remote-controlled flies. <laughs> the lasers stimulate specific brain cells, making the fly jump, walk, flap between. They can control the fly. Did I tell you that I was at Yale? Really? I had a chance to experiment with only a bit. The idea of optogenetics is that you express uh, some channels in a selected group of cells, um, and then these cells, once you shine light on them, then they depolarize. So these are light-sensitive channels, and then you have selective access to stimulate them. And um, as the video showed, you can do it in living organisms. And so the Gero had a huge contribution to this, and this is a, a neuron which is expressing this channel, and in the dark, it is, it is quiet. No action potentials. You switch on the light, and then it, you will have this sustained firing. So you can exploit this technique in, uh, in mammals, vertebrates, to look at certain cell groups, and it is making a huge impact now to understand circuits. So you can dissect these circuits. So 
Oxford had a huge contribution. Don't forget, the word neurology comes from Oxford. Uh, the idea that cerebral cortex is responsible for higher cognitive functions is also coming from Oxford. I told you that the human cerebral cortex has the highest number of neurons in any living organisms on the Earth. And the uh, cerebral cortical neurons are as old as you are. Neurons uh, form circuits via synapses, and the name synapse was given uh, uh, by Sherrington. Uh, we also discussed some of the reflexes um, and also the fundamentals behind imaging the brain. And also don't forget that optogenetics is also coming now from Oxford. So I would like to say thanks to all the founders, um, and especially to Damien Young and John Mason who helped with the website. Uh, Marianne Philens uh, for discussions about the box. And also, I would like to say thanks to Divya Jatavalabula, Sandrine Randall, and Ranjan Chetty, who initially didn't send us away to scan these slides, but they were very helpful uh, to train some of the summer students to start scanning in the Sherrington slides. And now, I'm also um, very grateful to Olaf to host the scanner. Uh, which is helping us to scan in some of these historic uh, slides in the pathology department. And I'm also very grateful for your attention. Thank you.